beginning at verse 1 down through verse 9, let's, as we do every Sunday, let's read together. Let's read aloud. Verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Shall we pray? Father, we pray for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit this morning, that we may understand and be granted your wisdom in the words that we study today. We thank you so much for giving us this opportunity, this place, this freedom to learn of you, to grow in grace and knowledge that, Lord, we may be used of you to bring the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ to those who are in darkness, to those whose eyes are open but are still blind. Father, we thank you for what you did in opening our eyes, our ears, our hearts. We thank you and bless you for this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You all may be seated. Robert Ingersoll, the renowned atheist of a couple of centuries ago, or I should say a couple of generations ago, not centuries, but generations. That would have made him real old. He was riding on a train with his friend and associate, a man named Lou Wallace. As they approached the sprawling city of St. Louis, Missouri, they were discussing Ingersoll's current lecture tour, during which he openly attacked man's belief in God. Wallace Ingersoll said to him, Look at all those church steeples in St. Louis. Such a waste of money. You and I both know that Christ did not really exist. Someone should tell the masses how foolish it is to worship a myth. It is a shame, agreed Wallace. Lou, why don't you write a book and prove to the world once and for all that Jesus Christ was nothing but a mythical figure, much less the Son of God, Ingersoll suggested. 
All right, Wallace replied, I believe I will. Lou Wallace spent much time and money investigating every shred of evidence that he could find. He read numerous books. He examined many ancient manuscripts. He visited the Holy Land. He read the Bible. But something strange happened to to Lou Wallace. The more that he studied, the more evidence that he discovered to support Christ's existence. He searched more intently and, and even more reverently. And the evidence became irrefutable. He concluded that Jesus Christ was one of the best documented figures of history. Furthermore, Wallace believed he must also have been the Son of God. Lou Wallace accepted Christ as his personal Savior. He did write a book about Jesus, but its message was altogether different from his preconceived notions. Anyone who has read the book, Ben-Hur, can appreciate Wallace's thorough research and deep reverent spirit in search of the historical Jesus. And I said, read the book, Ben-Hur, not see the movie. Too many liberties in the movie. It's in the book that you realize what kind of research he did to come to the realization that Jesus Christ is truly not only the Son of God, but God the Son. And it makes you wonder about these atheists today that are going around the country and maybe even around the world trying to have debates to say that there really isn't a God. Because you see, if they were even to take one little bit of, of, of objective research and do some objective research, they would probably come to the same conclusion, but they don't want to do that. You see, the problem today is that people don't want to believe in God because of their moral positions. So they don't want anybody to be accountable to. That's the problem with the atheists of today. But I bring up this particular story of Lou Wallace and his conversion to Christ because of the conversion that we are going to see in our text today. What can be said about the conversion of the young Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus? Were there any similarities in Lou Wallace's conversion to that of Saul's? In spite of the fact that they both had a disdain for Christianity and for those who would follow what they considered to be a cult of ignorance, there were many more differences. The main difference was that while Wallace was an avowed atheist, Saul was a zealous believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the Hebrews. Saul's testimony, when he became Paul the Apostle, is replete with descriptions of his devotion, not only to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but to his Jewish religion. Consider what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4-6, through when he says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, 
concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law? Blameless. That's quite a resume. When he writes to the churches in Galatia, he says this in Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And then we find, as he stands before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, that he gives this part of his testimony in verses 9 through 11. And he says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue, compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And so Saul, you see, Saul, this intellectual giant, who concluded, based on his own biased point of view, that there could be no peaceful coexistence between Judaism and Christianity in their most militant forms, took his most deadly aim at the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. For as he mentions him in that way in verse 9 of Acts chapter 26, you have to remember that what Paul thought of Jesus was that he was an accused blasphemer, and therefore he was a false messiah for claiming to be the Son of God. Add to that the very fact that Jesus to Saul was dead because he hung on a tree. And there he died. But not only that he died, but the very fact that he hung on a tree was enough to disqualify him from being even close to a Messiah. For the Jewish law stated in Deuteronomy 21 verse 22 and following, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. So knowing that Jesus hung on that tree, Paul said, this man is accursed. And there's no way that these people who are following him today are following a true Messiah. Besides, he's dead. And anyone who follows him are going to be dead to their families and to their friends and to these synagogues and to the temple because they follow a dead Messiah. Interesting that later on, as Paul the Apostle, he would go back to this particular scripture, but now, realizing what it meant, realizing what Jesus truly had done, he states it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. When Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, if you don't have the proper perspective, your views are going to be completely opposed. 
He came to realize that Jesus came to die on that cross for the sins of men. To be accursed for us. To be accursed in our place. And so what was happening with Saul when we saw him last? Well, we, we last read of Saul in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, when he was making havoc of the church, it says there, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Here in chapter 9, he continues to expand his work, that kind of work, to the city of Damascus. And you'll notice, let's read again verses 1 and 2. It says, then Saul, and, th- and this is very descriptive and is very important for us to understand what's happening in verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, it can rightly be said that Saul was an intimidator and a murderer in the most brutal of ways. You see, the language in verse 1 is quite intense. One Greek scholar has written this. He says, threatening and slaughter had come to be the very breath that Saul breathed. Like a war horse who sniffed the smell of battle. Interesting description. Another said that it was as if Saul was a predatory animal who had caught a scent, much like the great white shark that can detect a single drop of blood in 25 gallons of water. Saul had caught a scent of Christ's disciples 130 miles away and wanted to murder them. You see, it's interesting that in in, in that statement that Saul still breathing threats, Literally, it says still breathing in. Still breathing in like, a, like an animal. Hunting its prey. Still breathing in threats and slaughter and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Brutal was Saul's heart against the church. Damascus being that distance away from Jerusalem, about 130 miles northeast of Jerusalem, was at least a, a six-day journey. And his, and his willingness to go there reveals how committed he was to this cause. So you have to realize that when the Lord got a hold of Saul, Saul wasn't looking for Jesus. He wasn't a seeker. Heard of people that are seekers today? And therefore now we have seeker-friendly churches, but we want to be friendly to the seekers. Saul wasn't seeking. He was seeking blood. He was seeking to destroy a movement. That's what Saul had in his heart. That's what he was obsessed with. It was his obsession. So when God got a hold of him, understand, he wasn't looking for Jesus. And he wasn't looking into running into Jesus anytime soon. What he was looking to do was eliminate a dangerous demonic sect, as he thought, before it destroyed his historic Jewish faith. He thought for sure he was doing God's work. There are people today who think that they do things in the name of God and that they're doing God's work, but they're not doing God's work when they begin to kill and maim and, 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 and hurt people as, as they do in some religions. And it's even sad that people under the, under the uh, deception of, of Christ and the cross would even say that. 
people who would go out and 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 carry banners, you know, that say God hates you and this and that, you know. They're, they don't represent the church. They do not represent the church. But you see, Saul thought he was doing God's work. And so he applied to the high priest for written authority to extradite Jews who had probably fled to Damascus when persecution broke out and, and returned them to Jerusalem for trial. Now Damascus at that time had a very large Jewish community having a, an estimated 30 to 40 synagogues throughout the city. It was a large Jewish community there. Damascus is a very, very old city. I mean, as a matter of fact, you can take it all the way back to even Abraham's time. So it's been around a long time. And there was a large Jewish community there. So the letters from the high priest that Saul was seeking uh, would have instructed the synagogue leaders to identify those who had returned from Jerusalem, converted to Jesus, so that Saul would then seize them and bring them back as prisoners. You see, you have to understand something about Saul here as well. The leaders of the Sanhedrin They did not send Saul on this mission. Saul requested it. This was his desire. In fact, he wasn't really even lining up with Caiaphas, you know, and all of his teachers, you know. Caiaphas being the high priest. But Gamaliel, who, remember Gamaliel, who was was also trying to be, you know, somewhat tolerant, you know. Be careful of what you're doing with these people. If they're right, well, Saul didn't believe that. He said, we need to put a stop to this movement. It's got to come to an end. He became militant. And his zealousness destroyed Christianity. And it's also interesting now in our text that he referred to Christianity as the way. You'll notice that there in verse 2. He asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way... Well, this seems to be the earliest name for the Christian movement, which is, by the way, this, this phrase is used five times in the book of Acts. But, but it does reflect that Christianity is more than just a belief or a set of opinions or even doctrines. It's more than that. It's more than a religious system, because to follow Jesus is a way of life. It is a way of living. It is a way of living as well as believing. And I know why they called... The movement, the way. Really, it's taken from the very statement of Jesus Himself before He is taken to the cross. When He says to His own disciples in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through Me. I am the way. They were followers of the way. And we know that as you look at that particular word in the Scriptures, that it refers to a path, it refers to a road. And we know that eventually Saul is going to be on a road. He's going to be on his own path. He's on his own way somewhere. With his own intentions, with his own desires, with his own purposes. Until he runs into the way. But it brings up a question I want you to ask yourselves this morning. Which way am I going? Which way, indeed, are you going? Are you going in the way of Jesus Christ? Are you going in the way of the truth? 
the truth of God's Word? Are you going in the way, the truth, and in the life of Christ living in us? Are you going in the way of Jesus? Ask yourself. I like to do this because the Scriptures tell us that we need to examine ourselves to see that we're in the faith. And that should be a daily thing that we do. To check ourselves. To examine our hearts. That's why we're here today. To let the light of the glory of God's Word reflect into our hearts and awaken us to where we stand with Jesus. And so, as Saul would mention, you know, that he wants to bring those of the way into some sort of uh, elimination. He now journeys on his way. In verse 3 it says, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. This may be one of the very few times, if if even the very first time, that Saul of Tarsus, one who was of uh, had had great confidence in his in his own self, in his own mind, in his own intellect, in his own ways of doing things, in his own reverence to his God and to his religion. And for the first time here, he has to ask the question: Who are you? In fear, in trembling, who are you, Lord? And when he uses that word Lord that first time there, it isn't so much that he recognizes yet who this Lord is, but very much so being the very fact that he's you know, brought into some situation that he wasn't aware of, or, or you know, this light shining on him, and, and in being in the confusion that he was, he, he wasn't saying Lord as if he knew. It was more out of respect or fear. Something greater than he had knocked him down. And Jesus says to him, I am Jesus. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. On the road to Damascus, Jesus meets Saul. Interesting, isn't it? In the last chapter, in our last chapter study with Philip and the Ethiopian, a eunuch, the Lord used Philip to bring the eunuch to saving faith. In the next chapter, God uses Peter to bring Cornelius to Christ. But it took Jesus to get the Apostle Paul as Saul. Jesus himself was on the way. And he says, I am Jesus. Ego eimi Yeshua. I am Jesus. I think Saul would have recognized that statement. For Moses himself, when asking the voice that came out of the burning bush, when asking him because he was being sent back to Egypt and saying, Who shall I say is sending me? What name do I give them? 
And God said to him, I am that I am. I am. When Jesus came on the scene in his earthly ministry, and he begins to reveal who he is to the people. And when he said, before Abraham was, I am, they knew what he was saying. That's why they picked up stones to stone him. Before Abraham was, I am. And they came to arrest him in the garden, to take him to his trial. Are you the one we're seeking? He said, I am. And those who came fell back as dead. This isn't just a way of answering Saul's question. Who are you, Lord? He says, I am Lord. I am Yeshua. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads, us all. Verse 6, so he, trembling and astonished, he said, Lord, I truly have to believe that now when he says, Lord, here, it's not as if he is saying, Lord, in his first statement, who are you? Because now Jesus has identified himself. And he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Saul was not alone as he was traveling to Damascus. But he might as well have been. He might as well have been alone. Because in his bitter determination to wreak vengeance on the Christ followers in Damascus and and drawing very near to the city on that road, this, this giant of intellect and devotion who would listen to no man on earth who would try to dissuade him from his mission met a man with nail prints in his hands who stood in Saul's path and who would bring about a greater miracle than raising Lazarus from the dead. A greater miracle... For when Paul gave his testimony on later occasions, he would mention that it was high noon when the miracle took place. Acts 22, verse 6. Paul says, Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. Noon being the time when the sun was at its zenith, at its highest place, at its brightest. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. Can you imagine a light greater than the sun at its brightest? Overpowering the sun's power? Overpowering the sun's light? In Acts 26, verses 12 and 13, again, Paul says, While this occupied, while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. You know, it isn't every day that God confronts sinners with a heavenly light and an audible voice. Anybody had that experience this week? Nobody. Okay, good. That uh, makes me feel good. Better. It hasn't happened to you. It didn't happen to you. It didn't even happen to you when you got saved. It didn't happen to you when you met Jesus on your Damascus road. How significant that is. 
That God confronted Saul in this way because it was completely unusual and it makes this conversion a significant thing. Again, Jesus was the one who confronts Saul. Not Philip, not Peter, not any of the other disciples. Jesus Himself. And God shined a light brighter than the sun could ever be and Saul fell to the ground. I mean, it knocked him to the ground. And I have to say at this point, Saul now is roadkill. You all know what roadkill is, right? Saul is on the road and he's flattened. Roadkill, you know, flattened stuff. Saul is flattened by the light of the glory of Christ. Roadkill. You know, it's been said by some that Saul fell off a horse. Well, we're never told in Scripture that he was riding a horse. But figuratively, he certainly was knocked off his high horse. He was proud. A proud Jew. I mean, you heard his resume. The stock of Israel. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Even knew that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Concerning zeal and and, and all righteousness, he, he was above everyone else. He was proud. Not only to be a Jew, he was proud to be the Jew that was going to take down Christianity. Until that light made him roadkill. And here's what he learned that day, which is what every one of us learns the day that Jesus Christ reveals himself to us as King of kings and Lord of lords. He learned that God is God and we are just clay. Saul learned that God is God and Saul was a piece of clay. Now, was Saul beginning to realize that he was a needy person in need of God's help, in need of God's salvation, and the best place for him to be was on the ground? I believe he was. I believe he was learning that lesson, just like we all learn that lesson when you come to realize that there is someone greater than us, wiser than us, more powerful than us, higher than us, And his name is Jesus, who died for us and rose again. Peter writes in his first letter to the church, in verses 5 through 7 of chapter 5, he says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. But here's where I want you to begin noticing what he says. He says, And be clothed. With humility. Be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. You see, Saul would not have humbled himself. The scriptures are very clear. If we exalt ourselves, He will humble us. Actually, to the sense of humiliating us, He will bring us down that far. But if we humble ourselves, He will exalt us. He will lift us up. He will bless us in due season. 
And you see, this is the process now beginning in this person named Saul, who knew the Scriptures, I'm sure, memorized to, to the very letter, to the jot and to the tittle of the whole Scripture. Saul now realizes he has to learn something else. He has to learn one more lesson. And that is that Jesus is what all the Scriptures point to. Jesus is who all the Scriptures point to. And His whole theology is stirred up. That comes from being humbled by God. You know, if you're thinking in your heart, and please listen to this, if you listen to anything else today, but if, you, if you're thinking in your heart right now, I can take or leave this God stuff. I can take or leave this God stuff, but I don't really need it. If you're thinking that, then I just need to tell you something. With all due respect, you're a fool. You are foolish. If you say, I can take or leave God, but, but I don't really need Him, you're being foolish. My prayer for you is that you'll grow up quick enough to realize your need for Him before you ruin your life any more than it already is. That is the importance of humbling ourselves before a mighty God. We need God. We need Jesus. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need God. And Saul came to realize that day he needed God. He thought he knew God. He knew a lot about God. A lot of us know a lot about God and about Jesus. But do we know Him? Listen to what Jesus says to Saul. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Can you imagine the impact of that question to Saul? Saul, why are you persecuting me? That had to have been even more impacting than the light that shined on him, that dropped him to the ground. And then think that when he asked who was speaking, who are you, Lord? Saul must have been swallowing hard when the answer came. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What would you have done if you were Saul when you heard that answer? Would you repeat that? Did I hear right? Would you repeat? Did you say Jesus? I thought you were dead and gone. Isn't that what he thought? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. You know, no one is sure whether Saul ever met Jesus while he was on earth, in his earthly ministry, I should say, but, 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 but the possibility exists. Yet never, Paul never mentioned that in his letters, he never mentioned it in his writings. There have been those who actually believe and think that, uh, that uh, Paul, as Saul, a young Saul, would have been the rich young ruler 
who came to Jesus in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is quite possible. Had the same M.O. in a sense. Uh, come from a rich family, young, have a position of some sort. Was one who kept the law as he himself boasted in. Very possible. But Paul never mentions that. And, and I bring this up because this account seems to be his first encounter with Jesus. And, and that's important because his view of Jesus was truly formed on the Damascus Road. His view of Jesus was truly formed on the Damascus Road. Because to the Apostle Paul, the Savior was never Jesus of Nazareth. You can look through all of, of Paul's writings to try to see where he labels him as that. He never really does. He did in, in Acts, when I read that one particular account, where he himself is giving his testimony about what he wanted to do because of what he had been hearing of Jesus of Nazareth. He mentions him there, but I tell you this, most of the time you'll hear things like this. He doesn't consider his Savior and calls him Jesus of Nazareth. He calls him the Lord from heaven. You know why? Because that light came from heaven on the Damascus Road, on him that dropped him to the very ground. We find that particular statement in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47. When Paul is describing here, you know, the difference between Adam and Jesus, the first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Paul knew where Jesus was from. Paul knew what had happened to him on that day on the Damascus Road when that light shined brightly upon him that was brighter than the sun, that blinded him for a time. He was the Lord from heaven. How he loved Jesus. How he loved to proclaim Him as Lord, as Savior, as Redeemer, as King. But whatever view that, that Saul had of the risen Lord highlighted all of his thinking about Jesus. It, it, just, it just colored everything about Jesus. That, that, that view that he had of the risen Lord. Because you see, Jesus is alive. Jesus is talking to him. The one that he thought was dead and gone is speaking to him and saying, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he would never forget what he called the heavenly vision. He would never forget it. Would you? How could we ever forget the first time we meet Jesus? And even though we didn't have that light shine on us, it was impacting to us. The day that Jesus spoke to us and said, I am Jesus who died on the cross for you. What an impact that is. He would never forget what he called the heavenly vision. Acts 26 before Agrippa, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to what? The heavenly vision. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting, of, or befitting repentance. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He did not forget that day that he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. That was his Damascus Road experience. And you know what? Each and every one of us that knows Jesus Christ personally had a Damascus Road experience. Maybe it wasn't outside of Damascus. But wherever it was, 
It was on the road that you were going somewhere and Jesus met you. How do you forget that day? I can't forget the day that Jesus first spoke to my heart. How can we forget that? Saul would soon be convinced, you see. And we would have to say immediately convinced, Lord, what do you want me to do? (laughs) Saul would soon be convinced that Jesus was God over all, blessed forevermore, and that He was man, real and human. And though He was man, real and human, He was seated at the right hand of His Father by sovereign right. As a matter of fact, when you read the book of Hebrews, and I know know, there's controversy as to who wrote the book of Hebrews, I believe... I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. You can have whatever, whatever you want to think. His name's not attached to it, but there's a lot of things that are important, and I'm not going to go into all the details as to why, but I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Five times in the book of Hebrews, he speaks about Jesus at the right hand of the Father, sitting at the right hand of God. One of those places which is so uh, much of a, of a great and encouraging uh, word to each and every one of our hearts is Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And there are many others, and he does use that particular statement in his other letters as well. But the one thing, the one thing that Paul would never forget about the Lord that day was what he learned about the body of Christ, the church. He would never forget the very fact that he met Jesus that day, but the one thing he would never forget about the Lord was what he learned about the body of Christ, the church. You see, when the Lord took Saul under arrest, because remember that Saul was on his way to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem? He had the letters. He had the authority given to him. Again, they didn't didn't send him. He sought the the authority. This was his initiative. This was his project. This was his mission. This was going to earn him the Nobel Prize for his people and from his people. And he takes these letters and he's going to, to put people under arrest and drag them back, kicking them. You know, I call this kicking down the road. Saul's been kicking backs of Christians all this time. Till God kicked him. The fact is that when the Lord took Saul under arrest, you see, Saul got arrested that day. And when the Lord took Saul under arrest that day, he did not tell him this. He did not say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute them? Did you see that in the text? That's not in the text. Jesus never said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting them? He didn't say that. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? At that very moment, Saul learned that there was a mysterious but real link between the head of the church in heaven and the members of that church on earth. If Saul put his hand upon a Christian, that was the equivalent of putting his hand upon Jesus. If Saul put his hands around the neck of a person that was a Christian, he was putting his neck around Jesus. If Saul beat that person, he was beating Jesus. Can you imagine learning that lesson about the body of Christ? 
And the head of Christ, and the head of that body, I should say. How can you ever forget that? You can't forget that. So much so that, that, that Saul, when he writes about the church, reflects upon that. Think about what he writes when he's using actually the marriage between a husband and a wife to teach that about the link between the body of Christ and the church. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, a lot of people say he's using the church to, you know, to teach about marriage. No, he's using marriage to teach about the church. It's a good thing that he teaches about marriage there too. <laughs> but he wants us to see the link between the body and the head. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, he's, uh, Paul says, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn, uh, firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. But he is the head of the body. You see, this is an important thing that Paul wanted to teach, and that was that Jesus loves his body, the church. Jesus loves the church. You know, we have a lot of people that are they say they're in the church and they you know the you know they criticize the church in a lot of ways. And there are a lot of things to look at. I mean, we need to look at things based upon the word of God and judge them accordingly and judge the fruit and all of that. But in reality, Jesus loves the church. He loves his body. He loves those who love him. He loves those who are brought together in that oneness and unity of the faith, in unity of the spirit and in the love of God. He loves the church. He loves the church. Why would the head hate his own body? And so one moment, Saul was, was riding high, breathing out threatenings and slaughter. The next moment... He was prostrate on the ground, blinded by such a light as it had never shone on earth, and listening to the voice of his Creator now. He said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then he says this, It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now there's a word we don't use every day. How many of you use goads? Any of you? How many of you know what a goad is? A few of you know what a goad is. Okay, we're going to learn about a goad right now. But as Saul lay in the dust, humble beyond measure, filled with remorse, contrite and repentant, and yet encouraged to some extent with wonder, hope, and fear, Jesus would say to him, It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, a goad was a long wooden or iron pole, sharpened at the very end, used to prod stubborn oxen. That's what a goad was, all, was about. That's what a goad was. One, on one end of the pole, they had that, that sharpened point and, or had a, a sharp piece of metal attached to it. And when the ox didn't want to obey its master, it would kick against the master. That's what the ox was doing, you know, or, or you know, sometimes donkeys do that. And they try to kick against the master. They're not trying to, you know, just, they, they, the master's trying to get them to go, and they're trying to kick against the master, right? 
And so as they're trying to kick against him, the master would goad the ox back on its way. You see, from the noun, we now go to the verse. He goaded the animal. Woo! Let's go. And it would hurt. I mean, you know, who wants a, you know, a goat sticking in, the, in your backside, you know, getting you to go? I don't know. I guess some people like it. I don't know. I don't much care for it. What you need to understand is that Jesus had been goading Saul. And Saul was stubbornly resisting. He was stubbornly resisting Jesus. But on the road to Damascus, Saul would finally give in and he would give up. Because there's only so much that you can do kicking, you know. Well, 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 the, well the Lord is goading, you know. Oh, eventually you've got to give up. And Jesus says to him, it is so hard for you to kick against the goats. You see, Saul would finally give in, he would finally give up, and the Lord's goading would change to his guiding. His guiding Saul. Saul would now be guided by Jesus, not goaded any longer. Which would you rather have done for you? I'd rather that the Lord guide me, which means I'd have to change my heart to the extent that I want to follow him and I want to listen to him and I want to, I want to do what he says because he's the Lord and I'm not. But you know, when there's times when I don't have that particular desire or I, I lose that desire and I begin to kind of act on my own or I begin to act on myself, you know, it's okay, you know, we didn't give him permission, but the Lord has the permission because he's Lord and we're not to goad us. Does he not do that from time to time? I mean, think for a moment how, how that applies to us before you're saved and sometimes even after you are, the Lord has to goad you. You choose a way that seems right to you, but in the end it leads to destruction and could even lead to death. And Jesus wants to guide you, not goad you, but He wants to guide you along the way, His way. You see, Saul was not on Jesus' way when he started out. But Jesus wanted to guide him in His way, for it will always lead to life and peace. When we are guided by the Lord, it leads to life and peace. No matter what the circumstances are around us, The Lord many times takes us through storms, takes us through trials, takes us through floods. But we always seem to come through. Why? Because He's guiding us. That's part of our trust, our faith in the Lord, that we're trusting Him to lead us through these things. I should say, through these things. I didn't want to sound like uh, Ricky Ricardo there. Through these things. Through these things. You know, get get through there. (laughs) Sorry. Hey, Lucy. Okay. We, we, we trust Him. That's our faith in the Lord to guide us. But it, 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 again, it, it's that commitment, that desire in our hearts to say no to ourselves and to say yes to Jesus. He'll take us through those times. He'll take us through those trials because He has our best interests in mind. This is a beautiful psalm. Last night, uh, I hate to say this, but last night we had the Gutierrez brothers here for the Saturday night service. Uh, I don't mean to hate to say it. I just wish they were here today, but they're on the west side uh, today at the uh, Capilla Calvario, which is going to be Calvary Chapel, Santa Teresa, pretty soon because they're English and Spanish now. But we rejoice with Pastor Martin there. But anyway, they came and they sang a beautiful song that incorporated some of the of the words of Psalm 
23, you know the psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And notice it says, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. He leads, He leads, He leads. That's a wonderful God, isn't it? Who leads us and guides us. You see, anytime I think of the word driven, because that's kind of popular nowadays, every time I think of driven, I think of cattle. But the Lord called us to be sheep. We're not called to be cattle. He called us to be sheep. Now, sometimes sheep get stubborn. Sometimes sheep start acting like cattle. The Lord treats differently the situation. We've told the story oftentimes of how the Lord will take a stubborn sheep and break its leg. A shepherd will do that. Break its leg. And that sheep gets really angry. But it never leaves the sight of the shepherd because it can't. And sometimes the shepherd has to put that stubborn sheep on his neck. You've seen the picture. And he carries that sheep. The sheep's still angry. And the shepherd tries to feed him and doesn't want to eat. Because we're, we're stubborn like that, aren't we, sometimes? We get upset because something is said or done, you know, and, and we, 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 get mad, we get mad at the people at the church, we get mad at the people, we get, we get mad at the Lord, and you know what we say? Well, yeah, well, I'll teach you. I'm not going to go to church today. That's a stubborn sheep. But the Lord carries us, and He heals, He brings healing back to, and He keeps us by His side. And we're never closer to the Lord than when He's taught us that lesson. And he leads us and he guides us and he restores us. And that's what he wanted to do with Saul. It couldn't have taken a Philip or a Peter or a John or a James. It took Jesus. Goading Saul. But Saul would now be guided. And notice in verse 6 it says, So he trembling and astonished. I tell you what, that's the way we should live before God. Trembling and astonished. Trembling and astonished. Serving the Lord with fear and trembling. As Paul says to the Philippians. He understood this. Why? Because he was trembling and astonished before God. And and he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? The Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. They were dumbfounded. This is a very important point here, folks. Why didn't the Lord come for them too? He came for Saul. Have you ever thought about that? And we're so quick to, you know, to, to you know, condemn or, or criticize people for not telling people enough about Jesus. And of course, I've been talking about the fact that we need to tell people about Jesus. But you know what? Sometimes God just wants one person in a group of thousands or a group of tens or a group of hundreds. He wants that one. And all these other people are just like dumbfounded, you know. The light shone, and, you know, they're kind of all messed up there. And, and so, those who, they just stood speechless. Hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. So he opened his eyes, he still was blind. It's quite a bright light. But I believe there's a reason. They led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Saul Remember I said use the word Lord again, but this time it was his confession. It was his confession of faith. Lord, what do you want me to do? It was his confession. What is that confession? Paul wrote about it. 
You see, everything goes back to his Damascus Road experience. Paul wrote about it when he writes in Romans 10 verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. He's speaking to Jesus. He knows Jesus is now alive. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do? He has confessed with His mouth and believed in His heart that Jesus is risen from the dead. And from this time forward, Jesus was Lord in Saul's heart, in his mind, in his soul, in his will. The old Saul was true roadkill now. Every grand statement, think about this, every grand statement that Paul would write comes back to this passage in Acts. It comes back to the Damascus Road experience. Galatians 2.20 For I am crucified, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's the Damascus Road. Three days without speaking. Three days without eating. All he could do was sit in blind silence and humbled and challenged about who God was and what pleased God. He was learning to die to himself. As for his companions, they were purely spectators, unable to do anything but the obvious, which was to take Saul into Damascus. But what is interesting is that they gazed all about them and saw nothing, but Saul was blinded and saw everything. They were very much in the dark, but Saul had his inner eyes open to the light. He no longer resisted God's conviction. He no longer resisted Christ's goading. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Three days, it says, without sight, neither ate nor drank. How that coincides with dying in Christ. Dead to self. Three days blind. Not eating. Like being in the tomb, isn't it? With Jesus. But inside, he was very much alive. Conviction. Your car's gas gauge is kind of like conviction. It isn't nice when it reminds you all the time that you're getting low on fuel. You've got the light, you know, and the the you know little dings, and it's like bing bing. Oh my god! Oh, well, do always do. Oh, I got a couple more, a couple more gallons in there. I think I can get around. A couple more. Gauge more low, low, lower. Gauge is way below. Oh, about about half a gallon, I can make it, you know. Huh? Got the idea? But what's really bad is when you ignore its warnings and you run out of gas. That's conviction. It's like it. To what did Saul's conviction lead? Well, I want to put it in these words and close with this passage. It's in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Because you... See now some sense of how everything that happened to Saul on the Damascus Road, he incorporates. It is his life, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write to the church. But look at all the lessons that we have seen that come out in the writings of Paul. But this is what his conviction, his conviction led to. He writes in Galatians 1 verses 11 and 12, But I make known to you, brethren, 
that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. I met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he's very much alive. And he changed my life. Not just from Saul to Paul. That's a name change. He changed me from death to a life. You've ever seen those? Well, I, I, I go. I, well, some of us come from a different generation, you know. We used to watch a, a show on TV, a Western called Wanted Dead or Alive. Remember that? Steve McQueen, I think, was in it. Wanted Dead or Alive. That's how God wants us. Dead to ourselves, alive in Christ. Saul died. Roadkill. Flat. All the life out of him. But now he was alive. He was alive in Christ. And it's a wonderful picture to see that certain men had to take him in. How we had to be led as young believers in Christ. We can't just all of a sudden... Well, you know, Christ now, you've you got everything. No, we, we're, we're babes in Christ. Paul went through a small uh, time of being a babe in Christ. He grew quick because of what God had already prepared in his life. And so, which way are you going? And when you've come to that realization Will you always remember your Damascus road? Will you remember your Damascus road when you met Jesus? Because Paul wrote many letters incorporating his Damascus road experience. And we have been blessed by it because now it teaches us how close we can come to Jesus Christ. Dwell in me, Jesus said, and I will dwell in you. That's pretty close. We'll never forget what God has done to us, for us, through us, and with us. Let's never forget. I think the ones who forget are the ones that decide that church is too boring now. It's not relevant to my needs in this postmodern world. That's what I say to that. Jesus is the only life that there can be. Let's get into Him and His Word. His Word is still alive, sharper, powerful than any two-edged sword. It still cuts into the heart. I'm sorry for the noises. I didn't expect sound effects to come out today. Let's pray.